Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. We're um, really excited to have you all here today. Thank you so much. I'm Sherry Layton. I'm the president-elect for TAP. And we will be, um, this is an official town hall meeting for the Texas Association of Addiction Professionals. And we will be doing a state of the industry in a variety of areas. First of all, John Cates, um, who is our NADAC regional vice president, and Cynthia Moreno-Tui, who is the NADAC's executive director, will give us uh, a national overview and also just uh, happenings with NADAC. And Frank Davis, who is our certification board member, or excuse me, our certification board chair for the TAP certification board, is going to update you on some of the things that have been happening uh, with certifications in Texas and the activities of our certification board. And then I will follow that with um, happenings in Texas, kind of a state of the industry at the state level, so a state of the state industry, I guess. Um, and then we will close out with Scott Kelly, who will do our official vote. Uh, the one order of business that we have to take care of today is voting for our uh, bylaws revisions. And TAP members receive those bylaws revisions uh, in an email uh, a few, probably a month or so ago. So you had opportunity to read those in the fullest detail that you could have ever possibly wanted to do that. And so we will just be making a summary report of those changes today prior to the vote. So I want to get started um, with introducing John Cates, who's our regional vice president for NADAC and a long, long, long time addiction professional here in Texas and is uh, part of our Houston TAP chapter. So John. Do that dance thing, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be the least of things today. Uh, there's important people with important things to say. I am, it's my honor for about the last four months to be the regional vice president. That means that putting together affiliates for Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. Now, let me say that again because we are in Texas. I am a Texan. I have my boots on, so let me switch the order. I am the regional vice president. We're looking at affiliates for Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas. <laughs> What's wrong with you guys? What? Y'all are missing your thing. All right, you obviously probably, oh, that's not. I'm about to change the time. You need a joke. Uh, I'm famous for really bad jokes. And anybody who knows that, y'all know what the rules are, right? If you don't laugh, what happens? I tell another joke. I'm going to be really, 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 really careful today to give you only the best. Um, I'm so bad at it that I have to actually read them. Uh, I'm going to give you one, and let's see how good you are. It is difficult to explain point. It is difficult to explain puns to kleptomaniacs because they take things literally. <laughs> so that's enough. You want another one? Why do drug stores make sick people walk all the way to the back of the store to get their prescriptions while healthy people can buy cigarettes at the front? That's appropriate. Come on. God. All right. Mine is truly, truly the least of the reports because my job is just to facilitate other organizations that are trying to put together uh, an affiliation. In the South Central section... TAP is by far the leader. It's, the, it's huge compared to what's happening. However, I do want you to know that with the help from TAP and NADAC that we are developing full-blown affiliates in Arkansas. In fact, I'll be in Little Rock next, next week. In Arkansas, we are very, very close to having a full-blown affiliate. So please pray for us if you're a prayer. Meditate at us if you're a meditator. Do both if you do both. Uh, and also, if you know people in Oklahoma, Arkansas, or Louisiana, please give them our number and our name, and I'll get them hooked into the monthly organizational calls. And the hope is by the end of the year, not this year, but the, the year that I served, that we'll have full-blown affiliates in all four states. In the meantime, what is NADAC doing? NADAC is leading the charge on things as professionals and people who worry about our clients need to have a charge led on. 
I also get to take part in a lot of advocacy work, and I sit on the, on the uh, advocacy committee. I, I chair the committee in Houston and sit on the state board. And there's a lot coming our way, and as Cynthia begins to do this, we are going to be looking continually at parity, treating these diseases the same by insurance that all other diseases are. We have lots of questions coming our way, and the idea is can we please start using common sense in dealing with neurochanging chemicals like alcohol, marijuana, pharmaceuticals, and the others, because we need to have science and we need to do it. And there is nobody else with a voice to stand against the gigantic commercialization dollar but this organization right here. That's, I've known him a long time. I paid him. He's <laughs> and that's what we're going to continue to do. It is a tsunami of an idea. If you don't like the feet, what you feel, change it with a substance. And it doesn't have to be you know, anything under the care of anybody. So hang in there. It's my honor at this point in time to introduce Cynthia moreno Tui. She has been in the field 45, almost 45 years. All right. This is a true dedicated professional. She is the executive director of NADAC. And come on up. Y'all help welcome her. Good afternoon. I am really blessed just to be in this field. Do you not feel that yourself? Just to be blessed to be in the field. I started as a college intern at uh, 45 years ago, September 19th, 1974. And that, uh, and I was a person in recovery, which there are a lot of people in recovery coming into the field, but not a lot of people in recovery with degrees coming into the field at that time. So I was a weirdo, and I've always been a weirdo. I'll always be a weirdo, and I actually think it's a good idea. So those of you who feel like weirdos, it's a positive thing. It's not a negative thing. I just want to lead with that. And I want to thank John Cates. He's uh, been with NADAC now as the RVP. He's doing a great job. Um, he's fun to work with. The only thing is, could you just talk to him about those jokes? It's like, I don't even get them half the time. So I'm going to uh, give you some uh, background information about NADAC and, and go through these slides pretty quickly. So uh, I am ADHD XYZ, so just kind of bear with. But the important things that uh, I want you to know about, I'll slow down and give you some key points. So Diane Sevening is our, and sorry that got blacked out, but Diane Sevening is our president for NADAC. Um, and she uh, helps lead NADAC. And uh, for many of you who don't know NADAC, NADAC is uh, over 47 years old now. We'll be celebrating our 50th soon. And the whole mission of NADAC is focused on achieving excellence for people who specialize in addictive disorders. So I'm a social worker and an addiction professional. My focus almost for the full 45 years has been addiction related. Um, and NADAC really is working on how important that specialty is and that it is the specificity of addiction practice that makes us special. So we represent over 100,000 counselors. Our constituent base right now is over 50,000. And we've just completed our strategic planning. This uh, set of PowerPoints got completed at about 2 o'clock this morning. So. Uh, it's brand new stuff. You are the first group to get it, so feel free to give us feed feedback. So we have four fundamental elements, governance, staffing, staffing excellence, financial stability, and technology. And so that you know that our, our work of our governance, our board of directors, our executive committee is there to promote what it is that we do and to make sure that we have strategic objectives. So I'm not going to read these to you. You can read them. But what I want you to, your takeaway from this is that our leaders are constantly talking about what's happening in the profession. They're working with us day in and day out about legislative issues. I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing on the Hill. They oversight what NADAC is doing and, of course, what I'm doing. Our National Certification uh, Commission for Addiction Professionals 
oversees all of the elements of the policies and procedures. But more importantly, what's happened over the last 18 months is we've done a whole new job analysis. We've done a blueprint of competencies and um, uh, competencies and capabilities that an addiction counselor should have at level one, level two, which is bachelor's and master's level. And those uh, right now, you may have, those of you, how many of you are certified nationally in the room? Okay, those of you that are certified nationally, you probably got an email saying, will you take this beta test? So we're in beta testing right now and all the new tests will be out early November. And we're testing in colleges and universities so that when people complete their college program, they're taking the test right then. And when they get their experiential hours, they can take those test scores and use them instead of waiting two years, three years, once you get your experiential hours and taking the test. We're now testing in prisons. We're doing, we're involved with um, groups that are doing prison education for counselors in prisons. And that is really um, starting to hit America, how is it that uh, we've missed this for years, not, not working with our uh, people in prison population, men and women, that are there because of alcohol and drug issues and now are in recovery. So it's pretty, pretty much fun stuff. Um, and let me talk to you about our fundamental element too, which is staffing and operational excellence. So we can't do what we do without an excellent staff. That's the short order of it. And um, we, we work to help our staff be efficient and effective and give them the tools that they need to do that. And we also are very clear on policies and procedures and really uh, innovating that along the way. We're part of national groups for associations so that we're learning how to run our business better. Final, uh, foundation element three is financial stability. Uh, NADAC is real excited about our reserve account. We have a reserve account. We have more than enough money in the bank, and we're talking about investments and all those good things. So we're really happy about that. You know, uh, associations ebb and flow, and I, I like it when we're on the wave <laughs> that's going up. I, I prefer that. Uh, and we're doing all kinds of different things to cause that to happen, growing re reserves, growing funding streams, building product campaigns, and uh, better, uh, uh, broader contributions and strategic relationships. And our fourth fundamental issue is technology. So technology really rules the association world, and we are working on a new association management uh, system. And so um, next year, those of you that, how many of you take the webinars? Go on and take the webinars. So those of you who don't know about the webinars, I'll be talking about that in a minute. Next year, you'll be able to save all your certificates online in the NADAC AMS system. So when you go to renew or you go to update your certification, all your certificates are going to be there. You don't have to be looking for them all over the place. That's part of technology. Our four pillars. Um, I'm going to talk about that for a moment. This is what we live on, is education, professional development, advocacy and influence, membership and affiliates, and credentialing and standards. Let me talk a little bit about the webinar program. So the webinar program is over 150 hours of CEs that are specially um, suited to addiction practice from uh, experts all over uh, the United States and sometimes the world. We now are expanding bilingual outreach. Uh, we have the basics coming out in Spanish by the end of the year. So all of the basics education, our updated, our Spanish certification test will be updated as well with the new basics. And at the annual conference in Orlando at the end of this month, we'll have a pre-conference in Spanish and three different tracks um, happening at the Orlando conference in Spanish. So bilingual outreach is very important to us. And then, of course, we're enhancing the annual conference. So I've talked a little bit about the webinar series. Anybody can watch a webinar on NADAC. You don't have to be a member. But if you want the CEs, you want to be a TAP and NADAC member to do that. So TAP and NADAC are a reciprocal relationship. We don't let people in NADAC without TAP if they're from Texas, and vice versa. 
so that we're growing that relationship. And that means we're growing our voice, which is very important in, in the work that we're doing. Why is that important? Because for the first time ever in addiction history, we were able six years ago to get uh, funding at the federal level for minority fellowship. So that took us, so some disciplines have had that for over 40 years. So it took us basically years and years to get through to the federal government as well as to Congress how important we are, what we do, and get the funding to help further educate our uh, professionals. We also were able to change the rules in HRSA, the National Health Service Corps, to include addiction professionals. And that just happened last year. So we're constantly at the Hill, not only with Congress, but also with the other federal governments, helping them to understand who we are, what we do, and why we do it. And the exciting thing about that is that they're listening. I think part of that is because of the opioid crisis, but I like to talk about the marijuana tsunami that's coming at us. We also do other educational and professional certificate programs like conflict resolution, like recovery to practice, which is our peer recovery support program. Uh, this is a NIDA. This was done through NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, as a research. Um, and it's about the brain and how to change the brain and long-term trauma into recovery. We also do outreach to students and new professionals. So we're always looking at how do we help people get into the field? How do we help them want to come into this field? We've been working with Department of Labor and also with Congress on um, helping to support incentivize programs for enhanced salaries and benefits. And from in the last five years, the average, and you know I can't speak specifically to Texas, but the average salary for addiction counselors moved from 28,000 now to 42,000. That's a big jump in five years. But it's been work at Congress, work with the departments, work with the federal agencies to cause that to happen. That doesn't happen. I tell people, these things are not overnight successes. They take time. And they take um, consistency, being consistent. Our annual conference is down the road. If you want to come to Orlando and hang out at SeaWorld or Disneyland or Universal Studios and get some education, come on down and see us. Advocacy and influence. This is like the heartbeat of NADAC. NADAC started almost 50 years ago to advocate for people with addic addiction. Back then we called it alcoholism. We didn't have all those other words way back then. And it really was about to help people get the services that they needed that were appropriate. Those were the days when people were getting lobotomies because of their addiction or electric shock treatment and being locked up in state hospitals. And people thought that this was a, a mental health disease that needed that kind of treatment. Well, we know so much more today. And it is through that advocacy, though, that helps current Congress know. We now have a new caucus in Washington, D.C. for new Congress people who care about addictive disorders. That's the first time a new Congress has happened around this disease. It's very exciting. We're working with them on legislation. We're writing legislation. We're helping them to consider what kind of bills should be put forward. We supported the support bill, which is including um, more funding for education and training. And, um, and that, that we're working right now to include bachelor-level education uh, scholarships, which they have never considered before to do. The other exciting thing that came out of Congress in June, I don't know how many of you saw the National Resolution for Addiction Counselors, Addiction Professionals. Some of you saw it. Well, you need to see this because it was filed in Congress for addiction professionals saying these are the people who are doing the work to solve the opioid crisis and other addictive disorders, addiction counselors. I think that's big. That's never happened before. And to get that through, even um, filed in Congress, is a big deal. And so now we're going to train you guys what you can do with that and how that can help you tell your story, tell your agency's story, help people understand why what you do is important. It's a big deal. And from that, we're going to leverage that work onto more funding, long-term funding, not this short-term stuff, and really helping Congress to understand the issues around addiction are generational. 
right? So generational addiction, generational recovery. We should be looking at generational bills that actually help people to achieve that. So we are growing our influence. We're doing a lot around media. Uh, as I said, we're doing a lot on Capitol Hill. We had two advocacy um, conferences back to back. Sherry is one of our co-chairs. Sherry has been in this for forever, and she has been one of those leaders and uh, voices around addiction and the important pieces of recovery forever. She's one of my, I like to think of her as one of my mentors along the way, because she actually helps us to think about what sometimes, you know, in D.C. we're not thinking about everything because there's a lot to think about. you got to have the voices at home kind of fill in your brain on occasion. Uh, Sherry does that every month for me, <laughs> not on occasion. Well, NADAC started Advocacy in Action, Advocacy Conferences 30 years ago. We're the oldest advocacy group on Capitol Hill for addiction disorders. Um, and then, of course, we're doing a lot of work with ONDCP, NIDA, NIAAA, SAMHSA, you name it, we're there working. Um, this gives you just an idea of some of our strategic partnerships and networking that we're doing with national groups. And then membership and affiliates. It's all about you, you know. When people say, who's it about? It's about you. You're the membership. The affiliate is important to us. Without you, NADAC doesn't exist. And that's actually how we started the field, is through treatment centers, working together with their staff to form NADAC, or back in the day it was NAC, in order to, to build professional development and build professional skills and competency. And in 1979, NAC, NADAC, got a grant through NIAAA, or worked with NIAAA to get a grant to do the competencies that it takes to be an alcoholism counselor. In 1979, we came out with the first national credential for alcoholism practice that then by the next year, it ended up going from state to state versus national. So we had a national credential back in 1979 that we didn't pay attention to. Now we're paying attention to national credentials more so because of, uh, frankly, one of the reasons why we have reimbursement issues, why we have Medicaid issues, why we're not getting the reimbursement, the salaries, and all of that is because we don't have national credentials. People don't always understand who we are and what we do. In that national resolution, one of the things that it spoke to is the importance of national credentials so that people have transportability. This disease is transportable. People move. You need to be able to do telehealth or be able to move to other places. Many of our counselors move to other states. So we're doing more with that to help support our membership and our affiliates. We're doing a lot around emerging leader summits. We're working on a summit, actually um, looking at funding from um, Disney to do some work around. They do great leadership work. Uh, we have strategic uh, objectives to grow and strengthen our members and our affiliates and we do all kinds of services for them, including uh, the magazine. How many of you get the weekly e-blast on what's going on with NADAC? So that's free. If you're not signed up for it, please do. How many of you get the bi-weekly what's going on in the news and science around? Yeah, so that comes out bi-weekly. If you're not on it, you may want to be. And the NADAC website is uh, user-friendly now. We've done some changes to that, and we've put on the front page a search bar. So anything you're looking for, you should be able to get. John is going to be Vanna for a minute. We have broadened our um, scope and all of our work around education and training, so we have new manuals for the basics. These are being used at colleges and universities around the country, actually around the world, and we're now... Um, suggesting to treatment centers that they keep those on hand for issues around what, what's happening with this drug for this person, what's the pharmacology, what should you be doing to help that person in that, in that particular situation. You also have ethics and you also have counseling theory and skills attached to addiction practice. Clinical supervision is coming out this fall, um, and so we're also working on a clinical supervision series, webinar series, and then we have other products co-occurring and other products as well. 
We have a research foundation, Education Research Foundation. Sherry is also involved in that. What could we do without Sherry? I don't know. But the Education Research Foundation actually gives scholarships for people to attend the national conference. So last year, I think we had about 100 people that got scholarshiped for registration to the national conference, and we'll have about that many again this year. We also do the William White Scholarship for a Master and match, Master Bachelor, and I'm sorry, I have to change this, Associate Level Addiction-Focused Students. Credentialing and standards, I spoke a minute about that. Um, NADAC's um, NCAP credentials are used and recognized in over 50, uh, I'm sorry, over 30 states across the country and internationally as well. Those of you who don't know about the national cre credentials, I'm happy to talk to you about that. We are training and teaching all over the globe and helping people understand what addiction practice is about and what scopes of practices are about. We're all about setting standards and credentials, including how many of you are NADAC-approved providers in the room? Where your, educa yeah, your education and training has gone through a level of review and considered uh, appropriate, effective training, and you carry the gold seal with you. So we are working with Etude on a smoking cessation certificate right now that's available to people. We're um, working with Medicaid uh, not only on the smoking cessation issue, but also on the uh, uh, addiction issue and reimbursement. I was just on the phone with them yesterday, in fact, with their offices talking about the 1115 waivers and how that's affecting addiction practice across the country. And we're really working to do that. So what's in our pipeline? So this summer we published new guidelines for approved education providers. The DOT SAP qualification manual, the new update, will be out this fall. Same with clinical supervision. Those of you who work with veterans, anybody work with veterans? Okay, so we have a new series that just came out on working with veterans and how to do that. We have another series coming out on clinical supervision and then the Spanish basics. So that's my real quick review at the zoo, what's happening with NADAC. Um, you are welcome to ask me questions. I'll be out and about running around. And uh, thank you for your time and attention. And thank you for your membership in TAP and NADAC. We really appreciate that. Thank you. I do want to acknowledge um, the NERF that Cynthia mentioned has donated to TAP for our pack raffle that we are having throughout this conference. <coughs> to uh, a registration for the uh, 2020 NADAC conference, which will be held at uh, National Harbor just outside of Washington, D.C., and the 2020 NADAC Advocacy Conference will be attached to that as well. So if you buy a PAC ticket, you have not one but two opportunities to win a conference registration to that conference. And so we appreciate that donation uh, from the NAC, from from the NAC, from the NERF, um, the NACADY NERF, um, the NACADY NERF. So next I would like to introduce uh, Frank Davis who has chaired our Texas Certification Commission for ever, I don't, for six years, the last six years he's coming to the end of his term and will roll off because that's the way all of our um, board terms do, two, two terms maximum. And so Frank's leadership will be greatly missed, and a lot of uh, wonderful things have happened under his leadership for the CERT board. So uh, she's right. I actually was on the board as the chairman for six years, and then I came off for a year, and I thought, well, I'm done. I'll help you all out wherever I can. And somebody managed to talk me into coming back for another six years. I still have a resentment on that one, but <laughs> no, I've really, really thoroughly enjoyed the work that I've done with the certification board and, uh, and with TAP. It's been very rewarding. If you're not a NADAC TAP member, I highly, highly encourage you to consider doing that because that is our voice. Uh, if it weren't for the voice of us standing out, none of us would be sitting here right now and addiction would be running rampant the way I look at it. So. I want to tell a little bit about what Texas Certification Board does. We used to be Texas Certification Board of Addiction Professionals, but because we took on some new certifications in the last few years, 
We've changed our name now. We're Texas Certification Board. Uh, we still have the same address, tcbap.org, because we didn't want to have to change all that. But we are an autonomous body and, and, and cohesion with Texas Association of Addiction Professionals. We actually under the same management company and everything else. But we're the ones that provide the IC and RC certifications as well as some state certifications here in Texas. And IC and RC is International Certification and Reciprocity Consortium. They're in, I don't know, about 78 different member bodies, including Canada and Italy and Spain. Uh, they've got Hong Kong. I'm just having a lot of trouble over there right now, by the way. South Korea. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. Israel. So IC and RC certifications are reciprocal with IC and RC member boards. And when I say reciprocal, I always like to clarify that because it's conditional reciprocal. For instance, if I hold an ADC, wherever I happen to hold one, an alcohol drug counselor certification, I might go to a state like New York where the only requirement is, is that I have a GED or high school diploma and the other hours and other qualifications. But if I was to go to, say, Oklahoma, I have to have a minimum of a bachelor's degree. And if I want to get licensed, I have to have a master's degree. So there's always those conditions on the reciprocity. But just to give you a little insight on what certifications we carry that are reciprocal, we carry the ADC, which is the alcohol drug counselor. It is the exact same exam to pass the ADC exam as it is for your LCDC exam. And people often ask me, well, why would I want to have both credentials? You can't use the ADC in Texas, and they're absolutely correct on that. But it was a saving grace for me quite a few years ago. I went up to Virginia to start up a program, and I went up there and asked them if I could reciprocate my LCDC, and they said, we don't accept an LCDC here. And I said, well, I have an ADC through ICNRC, and they said, we're an, IC, we're an ICNRC member board, so they were able to give me reciprocity. And you have to have the degree and everything else, but I did get reciprocity with it. We also carry a master's level credential, an AADC, which is an Advanced Alcohol Drug Abuse Counselor, and it is reciprocal also. We have a CCJP, which is a Certified Criminal Justice Professional, Addiction Professional credential that is reciprocal. In Texas, we have what's also called a CCJPA, which is an applicant status. Because in Texas, we're allowed to work in any program funded by Texas Department of Criminal Justice with the CCJP or the CCJPA. So we also carry the Certified Prevention Specialist. Uh, if you work in block grant programs, you probably know there's got to be somebody that's certified uh, or somebody that has the, uh, the designation. The uh, Clinical Supervisor Certification, we also carry that. Uh, now in Texas, you have to get your internship training either through a, uh, through a clinical training institute or under the supervision of a certified clinical supervisor who is certified through TCB as well as registering with HHSC. Yeah, in other words, you gotta, once you get the certification, you have to register it through them and, then, and send in the stuff like you would be in a CTI, uh, your KSA, your outline trainings and stuff like that, and your ethics agreement. And then you can supervise interns doing that. And some, some people have chosen to go that route, and I think it's a good way to go. Uh, we also carry the peer recovery support specialist certification, and I think that I haven't checked lately, but at last count it was about 25, 26 states that's carrying that same credential with ICNRC, and that's your peer coaches and stuff like that. Uh, that is a certification and does, has re does have reciprocity also. We also carry the peer coach, peer mentor designation, which HHSC asks us to carry. Same requirements, but you don't have to pass the exam. They asked us to carry that because some people couldn't or wouldn't or didn't want to pass the exam, and they wanted to allow them. You have to have either one of those credentials to work in the block grant programs in Texas uh, for peer coaching. Uh, we just recently, in the last year, have taken on, we, I worked along with them. Some of y'all know Joe Powell, and there were several of us that worked with HHSC to develop the Medicaid credentials for the Medicaid standards that was put forth in TAC 340 in Texas under House Bill 1486. So basically, we developed the mental health peer specialist and the recovery support peer specialist, and that was a journey, I'll have to say. <laughs> Working with HHSC is always interesting. But we managed to pull through it. We, uh, we actually opened up the grandfather period. Uh, they were not ready, so we had to wait until February the 1st, and we opened it up for 90 days. They asked us to extend it for 30 days. We did that, and then they asked us to extend it another 15 days, and we agreed to that, and that it is now closed. But just to give you some numbers, we, we certified 338 mental health specialists, the grandfathered over, that met the requirements. 
We certified 182 recovery support peer specialists that met the requirements. Uh, we certified over 100, right at 182 recovery support peer specialists, supervisor, uh, recovery support peer specialists, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, peer specialist supervisor, we, we, we uh, transferred over, grandfathered over 121 of those. Uh, the instructors, we have an instructor certification. It is not required, and I have to make that announcement by HHSC. Uh, if you're working in a training entity or training that is approved by us, uh, we wanted the people to be certified as instructors, but the way TAC was written up, they don't have to be certified, but we still carry the certification. It's voluntary. We have 16 of those. We certified 17 training entities around the state, either mental health or our, our uh, recovery support for substance use disorders. Some of them are carrying both. Um, that's the ones that we grandfathered. Now we've got 14 mental health specialists that are in the process of the initial certification. And we've got, right now, we've only got one that's in the RSPS process, initial process. And what that means is the way the new standards are to work in Medicaid funding program, you have to get your training under an approved entity, and then you have to get your certification under an approved entity, and TCB is an approved entity. So they, you get your, do your initial training. You have to do a self-evaluation online at their site. Then you do the core training, which is basically a six-hour training that covers the core principles of it. And then you do a 48-six-hour supplemental training if you want to do the recovery support peer specialist for substance use disorders. Or it's a 40-hour training if you want to do the mental health certification. Uh, once you do that, then you become certified uh, for six months. Then you have six months to do the 250 hours. I always tell people, if you want to do that, if you're going to get, go through this training, do that training. Go ahead and do the self-assessment, the core training, and the supplemental training, and then go ahead and pursue your PRSS, which is basically the big difference is that is a reciprocal credential that you have to have 500 hours, and you have to pass the exam and do a practicum, versus you have to do 250 hours to keep the certification for the RSPS or the MHPS. So after that initial certification, they have six months to do 250 hours of paid or volunteered uh, work experience. We, uh, one of the things I did want to mention is if somebody carries two of those credentials, we, we only charge $60 for those credentials. It's not a money-making deal. We didn't intend it to be that way. And if they want to carry two, it's an extra $20, which just basically covers administration fees. Uh, we do give discounts on our certifications. If you're a NADAC or a TAP member, and then we give a 10% discount, so no matter how many credentials you carry, you get 10% off of them. So if it costs you $100 to renew a certificate, you, you do it for 90 That's because we firmly believe in the advocacy work that NADAC and TAP does. Uh, I did also want to mention, if those of you who are certified, we have we have working with a partnership with a company called Certamy, and you can go ahead and track all of your trainings online. They'll send you renewal notices. They'll tell you where you're at in the training renewal processes. In other words, if you need to have... 40 hours of training and you've done 13 and it'll tell you specifically what hours and it'll constantly remind you all the way up until it expires and then it'll say well you're fixing to expire and then you have to do it but we've got that system we had to work out some kinks we've got that system going into place so those of you who are certified can be expected to be getting emails from a company called Certamy make sure that you follow up on that because that is a good way to track your renewal processes that includes all of the different certifications so any questions, I'd be glad to answer them at this time. I think I may have took up my 10 minutes. But We're going to do part, any questions at the end. At the end, okay. Thank you all very much. I do not know how Frank keeps all those S's straight. Um, would you flip to the next set of slides, please? Um, oh, I need to do that, huh? Okay, let's see. Thank you. Um, I just want to talk about the things that are happening in Texas that are relevant to treatment providers as well as treatment professionals. And the first thing um, that there, Chapter 448, the licensing rules for treatment facilities. So if you work in a licensed facility, these are the rules that you have to uh, follow. And our current set of rules are dated 2004. We are supposed to have those rules reviewed every four years, updated and reviewed and updated every four years. 
Our most current set of rules is 2004, so we are way behind the curve on this. We've, there's been a lot of starts and stops and starts and stops. The current set of rules is 47 pages. The state ha currently has a uh, work group established. There were eight uh, providers that were invited to come and be a part of this work group to represent the industry. Um, the current draft that is being covered by that work group is 119 pages. So that will let you know the just the, the depth and breadth of what is um, being reviewed. I'm a member of that work group. We are going through that draft line by line. Um, and it has been, um, it, the uh, initial idea was that it would be completed in October. I can promise you it's not going to be completed in October. Um, but once it is completed, there will be the opportunity for stakeholder comment. Um, and, and I'm pleased to say in my experience, we, I go to Austin every other Tuesday for meetings on this, and in my experience, the folks that we are working with that are in charge of this rules-making process at the state have been really reasonable and open to input, and um, I've been uh, very happy with the way that they have responded uh, to our input as providers. So um, I, we, we all need a new set of rules to operate under. I didn't know it was quite going to be, you know, triple <laughs> what we had, but um, we'll have a good set of rules once we finish. Also, LCDC licensing rules are going to be revised, and that's all we know at this point because there was an opportunity for people to apply to be a part of that work group, and I think those applications were taken until the end of August, right, Frank? <laughs> the LCDC work group, the applications we're taking until the... They actually cut it off, but they still haven't announced it. Okay, so people have, you know, had the opportunity to say, I would like to participate in that, but that we don't know who has been selected for that work group. So that's literally, it's very, very early in the process, but those rules are going to be revised as well. Um, I just want to congratulate us as an organization. We had a really um, successful recovery day at the Capitol in March, and 164 people attended that. If we're, did you go to the Capitol Day? Raise your hand if you went to Capitol Day. Um, we had... We had 55 of our U.S. of our 150 Texas state representatives were visited and 29 of our 31. That's an incredible, it's like we're almost there to have all of them uh, visited. And so um, we're very, um, very excited to have the group there that we had. It was a joint advocacy day between TAP, Recovery People, and the, which that is the group that represents those in, uh, that are in recovery, as well as the Association of Substance Abuse Programs. And so we will have a recovery day at the Capitol again in 2021. Texas legislators meet every other year in odd number years. And we would like for more people to be involved than we had uh, this year. And so the best way for us to get in front of the, the legislators that we need to talk to is to have their constituents represented. And so as you can see, we have um, about, we need about a hundred more people to have constituents of all the representatives, rep you know, there, and we need to make sure that we have all of the senators. So especially if you live in some of those far reaches of our state, please plan to, to take part in our advocacy work because, you know, we can have 20 people easily show up from from Houston or Austin or San Antonio, but it's a lot harder to get somebody from Dumas or you know some Fort Stockton or some of those places that are that are far far outreaches. Um, we had the focuses of this year's legislative session, which ended at the end of May, uh, that related to us. Maternal health care was a big focus. They had a select committee on that over the interim session. And Texas has a, uh, one of the highest rates in the, in the country of maternal death. Um, so deaths that occur within that first year after childbirth. And oftentimes those deaths are associated with drug overdose because the moms are able to stay clean for that period of time during their pregnancy. But when they return to use after their pregnancy, they have fatal overdoses. Um, so that was a big focus of the legislators. Foster care was a big focus as well. And what we know in this room is substance use and foster care 
issues are parallel. You know, we, the foster care workers will tell you that 75 to 80 percent of children removed from the home are removed from the home because of custodial substance use. And so you can't talk about foster care reform without talking about substance use prevention and treatment. Um, also, rural health care. How many of y'all live 50 miles or more west of Interstate 35? So, how many of y'all live 35 and east? Okay, where do the rest of you live? <laughs> y'all aren't raising your hands. You're not participating. Uh, but what? What they pull one up? They what we know in Texas is you have two very different states. Okay, you have 35 and east, which is predominantly urban areas, and you have west of 35, which is predominantly rural areas. And there's vast differences in healthcare availability in those two different parts of the state. And so that, and substance use care is a part of that as well. And so that has been a focus. There was a select committee during the interim period on opioids and substance use disorders, and so a lot of these things came together under um, these various umbrellas that got attention from our legislators. Um, and just to give you a couple of ideas about what happened in the Texas 86th legislative session that pertained to us, they did expand um, the availability of medical marijuana for several additional diagnoses. Um, and medical marijuana is uh, limited to not more than 0.5% THC. Um, so it's actually low, low THC cannabis that is um, has approved, and I have these specific conditions that are up here. Uh, previously, it was only allowed for a particular type of childhood epilepsy, and so they've added these additional. Uh, there was um, a law passed that allowed for the production and regulation of hemp, I think that's caused some problems uh, for law enforcement because they can't always tell what's hemp and what's uh, marijuana without specific testing that apparently is not all that available. Um, in the prevention realm, and our keynote speaker this morning talked about prevention and, and the three different aspects of prevention. A big prevention bill that was passed was uh, prohibiting uh, tobacco sales to anyone under 21 years old. And also uh, another thing was Narcan can, can now be available, is now available for purchase online in Texas. We do have an open prescription, and this wasn't, this was prior to this legislative session, but we do have an open prescription for Narcan in Texas, and what that means is anyone can walk into a pharmacy and request a Narcan prescription. You don't have to have a doctor's uh, written note for that. Um, so there were several bills that were passed related to uh, maternal health and education about substance use and mental health in public schools. You have to remember as well the school shooting that, we, that happened prior to this legislative session uh, in one of the schools down in Santa Fe, south of Houston. That influenced this legislative session as well. So there was a lot of focus on mental health uh, in public schools. And then we did get some, uh, for, for the one of the rare times we got an expansion of treatment funding specifically identified to increase rates for state funded contractors. It wasn't necessarily to increase the capacity but to increase the rates that they're paid. And any of y'all who operate within that system of state funded, you know that the state funded rates really don't allow for a sustainable business model. And so being able to increase those rates Hopefully there's ripple effects from that of being able to increase pay for counselors and other staff members, being able to increase a level of service. Um, there was um, Senate Bill 1564 uh, prohibited any kind of pre-authorization requirements for medication-assisted treatment medications under Medicaid, uh, with the exception of methadone, and that's because of the different federal regulations associated with methadone. Um, and then House Bill 4298, which we, was kind of pushed by some uh, LMHAs, the Licensed Mental Health Authorities, ended up maybe it's going to backfire. We're not sure, and it, so that's one of the things that's holding up in the um, facility licensing process. What they said was that satellite substance use disorder outpatient offices would not be required to have separate licenses, which they are now. 
but don't go out and do don't go out and open any new outpatient offices because it has not developed into rule and one of the things that the state auditors identified when they started looking at that was for example I work for La Hacienda and I have two in intensive outpatient programs each of those are licensed separately because that's what the state requires but and under the current rules if one of those IOP locations had findings in a state audit they would they would be under the audit and under the findings for that IOP. If it's all under one umbrella license, any finding in any of those facilities would fall back to the major facility. And they think that might uh, create some unintended consequences, so they're talking through all of that process. That's probably way more information than y'all want. Um, but we did receive Texas um, in the Texas budget for the biennium. They budget for two years, 464 million dollars for treatment um, prevention treatment services, and um, that include part of that is 152 million dollars over five years. Our keynote speaker was talking this morning about the importance of. Um, you know, not focusing everything on the opioid issues. And so much funding has been focused on opioid issues. For Texas specifically, from 2016 to 2021, Texas has $152 million available in grant funding specific to opioids. And as you saw repeatedly this morning, that is not our primary problem in Texas. So we, as the people with the boots on the ground, we need to make sure that we are conveying that message that we don't have an opioid problem in Texas. We have an addiction problem in Texas. The same thing that our speaker said this morning, because all the funding that gets earmarked for a specific drug and a specific population is not available to anyone else battling any other type of addiction. So we need to be the voice that keeps that message going, and that is each of our responsibility. Um, and out of that $28 million increase, $5 million of it was dedicated to the rate increases. As I mentioned, 23, over $23.5 million was dedicated to reduce the treatment wait list for pregnant women and women with dependent children. And that is a, a great uh, thing for those that particular population, but again, it's a specifically earmarked population, um, but it does reflect back on the focus that was on foster care uh, and maternal health that came out of the legislative session. There was uh, seven laws passed related to opioid prescribing. One of the ones that I thought was kind of interesting, and uh, we'll see how it plays out, but physicians must now have two years of continuing education regarding safe and effective pain management and opioid prescribing. I don't think we've ever told the physicians what they should get their continuing education in. So I think that really you know, indicates how strongly that this is being uh, considered a, a, a huge problem. Um, and, but, and then I highlighted a couple of other things uh, in red that I just find to be uh, interesting. One of those is data collection for overdose deaths. Because in Texas, you don't have to have a medical examiner identify a cause of death. And in a lot of our rural areas where justice of the peace, et cetera, perform that function, there's really not, um, there's not much medical investigation necessarily. So we really believe that overdose deaths are really underrepresented in Texas for that reason. And so this was some focus to, to try to get some better information. I do want to talk just for a few minutes about patient brokering laws because there's been a lot of focus on, you know, you see this in, the, you've seen this in the media, all the problems that have happened in Florida, um, overdose deaths related incidences, uh, you know, people being referred back and forth for, for the insurance coverages that they had and kickbacks and those kinds of things. In July of 2018, the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce uh, subcommittee on oversight and investigations held a hearing on this specific uh, treatment center marketing and patient brokering practices and in October we the federal law the support act of 2018 included a recovery kickback uh, prohibition and so this um, I highlighted some key phrases in red 
but what this made federal law that you cannot solicit or receive any remuneration, and remuneration is defined as anything of value, so you cannot solicit or receive any remuneration, including kickbacks, bribes, rebates directly or indirectly, cash or in kind, in return for referring a patient or a patronage to a recovery home treatment facility or toxicology lab, the urine drug testing uh, issues. Um, and you cannot pay or offer any remuneration to induce a referral to any of these places as well or for individuals to use any of these specific types of services. And so I think, you know, it's an opportunity for all providers just to look at their marketing practices and make sure they're in compliance with this. This happened last year, last fall, at the federal level, but patient brokering laws are nothing new in Texas, dating back to 1991, which was the last round of bad practices that we had in the mental health and substance use treatment industry. Uh, some incidences that happened in 1991 initiated the Texas Patient Solicitation Act, which was then amended and improved in 1993, and then again in 1999, but it was basically left essentially the same. Um, and that in Texas says that a person commits an offense if the person knowingly offers to pay or agrees to accept directly or indirectly, overtly or covertly, any remuneration in cash or in kind, which means gifts, to or from another for securing, soliciting a patient or patronage, et cetera. And so um, this is something we've had for a long time in Texas, but the law went into effect 20 years ago, and so people have kind of paid, have forgotten about it. Um, and National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers followed this law passing with, pro, you know, specificity in their uh, addiction treatment provider quality assurance guidebook um, that addressed this issue. Uh, at the national level, the idea we all understand 42 CFR Part 2, and if you've been to the doctor's office in the last 20 years or even your dentist, you've had some association with HIPAA. Um, I think it's funny when I go and sign in, it's a secret at the dentist, like nobody goes to the dentist. Um, and so I started putting things on this slide, and then it was just like, Psh, there's no way to even talk about this stuff because it's so up in the air. So I just came up with this cute little cartoon. Um, and uh, because there's two sides to this argument, and there's folks that really want to align 42 CFR with HIPAA, which would lessen the restrictions on confidentiality for those with seeking treatment for substance use disorder. And then there's folks who say, no, we've got to keep 42 CFR just as it is, and it works just fine, just like this. And so the jury is still out on where all of that is going to land. President Trump released his recommendations uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, SAMHSA has released recommendations recently, and, but the challenge is going to be where, where is this going to end up. But what I can say to you today is keep doing everything that you've always done for 42 CFR, and somebody will let you know if you need to do something different. But right now that law is still in effect, and we all need to comply with that law in our da daily dealings with our patients and their information. Um, and then uh, John talked about uh, parity and the parity law that went into effect in 2008 at the federal level. And just to let you know, in Texas, what we're doing, the 20, 2017 legislature established the Texas Mental Health and Substance Use Disorder Parity Work Group that would be in effect for four years. And that group has identified um, three different areas and some goals in that for compliance, complaints, and then education and awareness. So attention is being paid to this. The Texas Department of Insurance is involved with this group. The Medicaid folks are involved with this group. Commercial insurers are involved with this group, as well as uh, treatment providers um, and insurance folks. And so uh, parity is being paid attention to. We just waited 10 years to get around to it. And then um, just to emphasize the national attention that's happening to this uh, on March, in March of this year, uh, there was a ruling in a California federal court against uh, United Behavioral Health Insurance Company, 
that identified three areas in which they had failed their insureds and said they had unlawfully denied mental health and substance use disorder treatment to its policyholders across the country. And some of that happened by them using overly restrictive guidelines to make coverage decisions. And so if, you've, if you work in the world of private insurance and you deal with utilization review, you know how challenging that that can be at times to get authorization for your patient's ongoing treatment. And so what I just want you to know is Texas at the state level is working to address that to make sure that Texas regulators are, you know, bring that into robust compliance but also this has gone into the court system and insurance companies. New York uh, State had a big case as well um, year before last. And so this is, this is starting to, take, to work itself out in the courts as well where the insurance companies are being called to task. Um, and then the addiction workforce, Frank and I were on a call um, Last week, two weeks ago, Frank and I, Liz Kosha, Ed Bergen, um, Scott was on that call as well uh, with the health, their Health Professionals Resource Center, and they are updating the 2013 report on the mental health workforce shortage, and that is due next August to the governor, and they want to talk about all behavioral health providers, so this time addiction uh, counselors are, will be uh, a part of this. This is one of the things, one of the places where your association is involved because this request went to TAP that, that, we, that we participate in this communication. And so we were on that call as representatives of TAP. Um, but some of the things that Cynthia talked about with HRSA and some of the um, funding that's becoming available for people pursuing uh, addiction credentials, the National Health Service Corps and HRSA, which is the Health Resources Services Administration, both of the representation at the, tech, at the state level for both of those agencies is a part of this Health Professionals Resource Center. And, um, you know, sites can be, sites can apply to be identified as sites where those people working there are available for student loan forgiveness and individuals can apply as well. So if you are in their identified high, high need areas, some of your um, student debt can be forgiven perhaps if you go through, uh, if you want to pursue that. And in that conversation with them, we identified three areas uh, of just, you know, some of the workforce challenges that Texas has. And the one is that urban and, and rural workforce distribution. Uh, that whole I-35 idea, um, challenges that CIs have in getting their first hundred, or excuse me, their first thousand hours, being able to find workplaces that will, um, that will hire them for those first 1,000 hours, and then just the idea of payment. You know, we work for lower wages than average for other mental health uh, professionals. Uh, we have, we lack insurance reimbursement, and then some of us have, you know, just crushing student debt. And so all of those things are identified as workforce challenges and things that, that we need to be addressed. And what I want you know y'all to hear is that there are some resources available through HRSA and through uh, National Health Service Corps programs. But we also are very interested in, as an association, how we can help our membership and how we can begin to address these workforce challenges. And now we're going to move in, and Scott's going to conduct our vote for our town hall meeting. Ready. Okay, so here's how this goes. The bylaw change that we need to approve today includes recovery and service and provi uh, provider descriptions to expand to prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery services. We want to clarify the timing of various boards and certifi certification board meetings remove requirements to hold general membership meeting in first quarter to allow for more flexibility for meetings, uh, for more flexibility when the meeting can be held. We also wanted to add a membership option for the peer recovery support. And give you a good background, you've got the emails that went out to all you members related to this and uh, was given opportunity to give feedback and, and that kind of stuff prior to. Um, where this comes a problem is say if we move the conference to August or we move it to different time periods, it causes a lot of conflict with trying to get this stuff done. So I guess we, we 
just do an all in favor, right? Is that yeah? So we're just going to basically do an all because it has to be done here at the at this meeting right here, which is part of the revision changes. Um, all in favor of accepting these changes to the uh, bylaws? Can I see a show of hands for that? Oh boy, I need a counter, right? And how many opposed? Got a joker? Okay. All right. That's unanimous. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Well, that will close our town hall meeting. We are here to answer any questions that you have. Your next session will start at 2.30. And Lavelle, we do want to announce, I'm sorry, I forgot. We do want to announce the pack raffle. And TAP has a political action committee, and I think this gets overlooked sometimes. TAP has a political action committee that allows us to make con contributions to key legislators that are supportive of our issues and work on the legislation that we need worked on. And so this is the way that we raise money for the PAC raffle. And our prizes for this raffle, there are four different prizes. One is a two-night stay with breakfasts both days here at this hotel. The second is a 32-inch tele color television. And the fourth and fifth prizes are the uh, conference registration to the 2020 NADAC conference, which will be in National Harbor, Maryland, which sits right next door to Washington, D.C., and includes our advocacy conference. So they're $5 a piece, five for $20, and um, that supports PAC. And we will have that drawing on Saturday right after our 1030 keynote. So please buy your tickets. <laughs>